Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. Talk to Bob now. 210-599-5555. But as is frequently the case on Sunday mornings, <laughs> too late to dial and get in on the first round because Rita and Hank and Loretta and Wayne have already beaten you to it. But we'll have a line available for you very shortly on this beautiful Sunday morning. I don't know if you've been out yet, but 65 degrees at my house when I left home about 5 in the morning and just a beautiful day. You know, the rains across the area varied in amounts, but uh, most people got at least a quarter of an inch. Some people got as much as an inch and a half and just cooled off the world. The grass is already greener this morning and get Sunday off to a really, really good start. And why don't just go ahead and find out how it's going for everybody else. Let's get started with phone calls and Rita is up first. Good morning, Rita. Good morning, Bob. How's it? Good morning. Good. Everything is beautiful. Good. Um, I have two two problems. Well, one is a major problem in my eyes, and then I have a question about a plant. Okay. Um, back in 2018, I called you because I had put down some cotton burr compost on the lawn rather than have it trucked in. Mm-hmm. I thought I could just spread it out. Well, the grass started dying. I started having all kinds of issues. And you t- said that it could have had some herbicide in it. Yeah. The, from, you know, being put down for the cotton. So I dealt with that all season. Um, I ended up replacing some of that grass. And it was doing pretty good i mean it wasn't thriving but Mm -hmm. at least it was green so then last fall this past fall i had hogs come in first time in 42 years wow and they they rooted up the the front yard (laughs) they aerated it for you yeah in a a rough way (laughs) right so now so this this january we had some renovation on the yard we had to since the hogs pretty much destroyed mm-hmm. it. And I had new grass put down. Now, and this is by a contractor, so I didn't go to my usual spot. And I don't Which all it means is that he could afford a plastic sign and a pickup truck. So Yeah, I know. <laughs> uh, that's a whole other chapter. You, you just, you'd roll your eyes if I told you about that story. So anyway, um, new grass down, but there's cracks or areas, you know, where they don't butt it up totally. Mm-hmm. So right. I thought, okay, I'm going to just make this grass happy, and I'm going to fill in those cracks with the compost. Mm-hmm. So I had it brought in this time from stone and soil. Well, mm-hmm. when my guy put it down, he did put it down thin enough, but I noticed it was hot. Mm-hmm. So, of course, I started watering, but it still burned it somewhat, but not really really bad okay and it was put over the whole yard now 
I came in in March, and I put down some growing green, and again, that was the spring application. Okay. Well, I got your newsletter around June time frame, and it said you can put down another application to get through summer. Mm-hmm. So when I went to my second home, which is my other nursery, <laughs> they did not have growing green, but they had two new two new kinds. One of them was what I picked up called Nature's Creations. Mm-hmm. And it's a slow release. Yeah, premium lawn food. Premium yep, lawn food. Six, 612 has micro, the mycorrhizal fungi. I mean, you know, not supposed to burn yeah, and hot. Yeah. Okay, so I put it down. And ever since, and I didn't, I only bought one bag, thank goodness. So everywhere I put it down, my grass is dying. It just, it's, I don't know how to explain it, Bob. It's, it's not, there's some little tufts of green that I've kept alive. Mm-hmm. But at this late date, here it is, August, I've, I've still been watering Yep. But I'm still and, and Rita, what t- what kind of uh, grass, what variety of grass did you put it down when you replaced it? Just which, which one? Which know. kind of St. Augustine? I don't know what he put down. Okay. But Always find beautiful. that out if it ever happens again. Okay. Um, yeah, the, the Nature's Creation is a totally different product. It's mainly based on alfalfa rather based than based on uh, poultry litter, which is what Medina's Growing Green is based on. And I'm still a fan of the, uh, you know, of the poultry litter fertilizers. I, what I would do is, you know, at this point, I go back with some growing green. Um, it's, it certainly is available. We got 26 tons of both growing green and, uh, you know, the blend that Medina makes for us. Mm-hmm. But, um, I, it's just for whatever reason, the grass has not stood up as well to what we, what we have had is, has been a super hot summer. We've had individual days that are hotter than it's been in 10 years or more like 20 years. And, uh, the grass, if there's no disease involved, uh, there, there is some take-all patch around, which is Rhizoctony that hits grasses sometimes in the summer months. Um, I would take a sample of the grass to a good nursery. I would probably put down some cornmeal, but I'd go ahead and put down, uh, like say a, a poultry litter-based fertilizer like the growing green that you've used in the past. But, uh, about the only thing I would tell you is that I really doubt that the, that the fertilizer had a lot to do with this. But, uh, there is, you know, there, obviously it may have stimulated some of the take-all patch fungus which is out there but your uh, whole your whole ground cornmeal should take care of that and it should allow the grass to regrow as it starts to uh, come out um, as we cool off this fall and it has a little more energy left over to go back to growing i certainly don't think you're going to lose a whole yard again like you did really? uh, what they spray on cotton is a defoliating chemical and uh i remember years ago when i worked with alton Grimm, we killed about 600 roses with it one time when we got a hot batch curtain buyer cottonburg compost still had the defoliant in it and i've never recommended cottonburg compost since that time but um i again if you want to bring by a sample of your grass we can take a look and see but I, my suspicion is that you may have some take-all patch, which may, for whatever reason, have been more stimulated by the alfalfa-based fertilizer than by the uh, 
uh, typical poultry litter fertilizer. But at this point, I did some cornmeal. I probably do mm-hmm. some more of the growing green and um, keep your fingers even crossed. I'm, I'm sorry, even though the runners are brown and I'm down to soil in some places? Well, that's probably dead. But, you yeah, you, yeah. you know, St. Augustine spreads quickly. What green is left in there uh, should come back, you know, very quickly. St. Augustine, when it's the right growing season for it, those new runners can grow 24 inches in three weeks' time. So I'm just hoping there's enough live grass left in there. Uh, and if you have portions of your yard, if this only seems to be in the places where you put the other fertilizer, you may want to go dig up some little plugs uh, you know, that won't show in spots where you still have good grass and stick those in the middle of any big areas that look like they're dead and just uh, be ready so that when the weather goes back to a good growing situation for grass, you've got some good live grass in there to begin to grow. Okay, because, you know, like I said, I've been here 42 years, and we've been mm-hmm. through 2011. You remember that yep. year? Yeah. So, I mean... And then I, I drive by and I see all these lawns that are in full sun, and I'm real close to going up and ringing doorbells. What do you well, do with your lawn, you know? Yeah, but, I, I'm afraid that, Rita, probably a lot of the problem is your guy that put down the grass probably bought a crappy variety of St. Augustine, like Raleigh, okay. which okay. is very widely sold. And um, you've only been dealing with this for a very short period, but Raleigh is a very, very fungus-susceptible grass. And uh, don't you ever again, you know, buy grass without knowing what variety is. And if you're unsure, call me, and I'll tell you whether it's a good one or a bad one. But there are a lot of people out there in the grass business. And like I say, all you have to do to be a landscaper is be able to buy a plastic sign and a pickup truck, and voila, you are out there in business. I I think you're right there. But, I guess it okay. keeps me in business on the radio, solving people's <laughs> problems. So, but I, I'd rather talk about successes than problems. But oh, my know, suspicion but I mean, is that the majority of this problem is just having started out with the wrong grass variety. Okay. But we've got to put that behind us and uh, look forward to trying to save what we can. And you may end up buying a little bit of, uh, you know, uh, Floritam for the sun or Palmetto or Delmar for the shade and putting some plugs in here and there to get okay. a stronger grass growing. But for now, let's do the cornmeal. Let's do a little bit of uh, poultry litter-based fertilizer and um, uh, give it a little time and see what happens. Okay. And then one other thing here. Uh, actually, where I put that co- cottonbur compost, I'm still seeing issues in flower beds. I've got stunted crinums. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So that's what, that's what, what defoliants what, do. Uh, start using molasses on a little more regular basis. Uh, start okay. using Medina Plus on a little more regular basis because okay. only thing, fortunately, defoliating herbicides are gradually broken down by microbes. Now, you get some okay. of these sulfonated ureal compounds like picloram. Uh, it never goes away. It just uh, eventually gets diluted down to where you don't see as much effect. But the defoliants, given enough active microbial life, will break it down. So let's work at stimulating the the good microbes that are out there. And, uh, you know, it, it doesn't happen overnight. But you will get beyond uh, the problem of the defoliant. But it okay. may be another year before things are really back to normal. Okay. One last question. I know you got a million callers. Are you familiar with a plant called Dianella Tazred? It's in the. It's considered a, a lily of types, or a type of formium. 
It comes from Australia, New Zealand. Right. Area. Right. There, there are a bunch of new, uh, we just, you know, normally call them flax lilies rather than okay. yeah. confuse people with the, uh, with the botanical names. Uh, the variegated form is by far the most commonly sold one. Uh, I don't know that particular variety, but most of the flax lilies, the Dianellas, are, you know, good plants. Uh, I think my favorite spot for them is, uh, morning sun, afternoon shade. But okay. they will grow in bright shade. They will grow in full sun. Uh, they just want, you know, plenty of watering and uh, not not a bad plant. Um, okay. But again, that's I'm almost losing this one. Uh, it was gorgeous when I bought it, and I'm down to a few little leaves in this clump. Uh, will it come back? I mean. Check and be sure you didn't plant it too deeply or that it wasn't okay. too deep in the pot when you got it. Okay. It is a plant that does not like mulch right up around it, kind of like Liriope and some of the others. That If it stays wet above the crown of the plant, it just kind of falls to pieces and okay. dies one little section at a time. So okay. be sure it didn't come to you too deeply in the pot and be sure that you didn't plant it too deeply. If the crown is exposed, it should come back just fine. But if it's set down, if it's got wet stuff around it, it's not going to do well at all. All right. That sounds good, then. Thanks so much for the encouragement, Bob. <laughs> it's always good to talk to you. You have All a good right. day. Take care. Thanks, Rhea. Bye. Bye. All right. Let's get back to the phone calls. Hank's up next. Good morning, Hank. Good morning, Bob. Beautiful day in the neighborhood. Yes, it is. <laughs> hey, I have a small dilemma. I have a little decorative pond at home, probably like four foot by four foot, roughly three feet deep, two feet deep, whatever. And attracted to ponds. I mean, I'm sorry, frogs. Uh-huh. What can I do to eliminate those frogs? They're always hanging out there. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me, well, cornmeal or what? Tell me something. Yeah, yeah. Well, you get a snake. Snakes eat frogs. <laughs> okay, sure that would be a <laughs> good thing. But it. are are they just too noisy? What is your objection to the oh, frogs? Oh no, no. They, they just they end up in the pond, and I think they're eating the. The little uh, little fish that end up being born, and we lose our fish. Yeah, not much unless you've got the big old bullfrogs. Um, the frogs are actually beneficial. What they eat is more uh, bugs and algae, and um, huh. you know the, uh, the tadpoles. Their their larval state actually eat a lot of algae, so. Uh, I can see how the noise they make sometimes might keep you awake at night, but uh, I don't think I've ever had anybody trying to trying to eliminate frogs. And there's, you know, the only way that you would be able to do that would be basically changing out all the water periodically because I don't know how they manage to find their way in, but I know here at the nursery, you know, every time we have a big rain, even the mud puddles around will suddenly have tadpoles appear in them. So they're coming from somewhere and laying their eggs out there. Um, oh, golly, you know, they're they're an amphibian. Um uh birds will eat the frogs and uh like say snakes eat frogs just about anything catch a frog will eat it but uh they're they're really not causing any problems like say a bullfrog okay. which would be very uncommon to have in a small pond um would uh could potentially eat little fish but the the leopard frogs which are your most common guys out there other than startling you and making a lot of noise, they're really not hurting anything, and I'm not real sure 
how you would go about getting, you know, getting rid of them. I don't, I'm trying to think of a way you could construct a fall well, I, trap. I basically just grab them with a net and throw them across yeah. the street or, uh, but they end up coming back. Uh, oh, yeah. What I'm scared yeah. about is I have two labs there outside, and uh, one day I had a lab that was kind of foaming at the mouth, and mm-hmm. I called my neighbor. She's real she's real familiar with dog issues, and she says, uh, well, did he eat a frog? I said, I have to ask him. I have no idea. <laughs> yeah. Well, frogs have uh, something called poison glands in their skin. Now, you go down to South America, you can find some that uh, are really, really, really poisonous. But frogs and toads both will make a dog foam at the mouth. But other than give them a little bit of indigestion, they're not going to hurt them. There's not anything deadly uh, in a frog that's gonna that's gonna bother a dog, and most dogs only do it once. They get their first taste, and uh, they they go after. I have two labs, so uh, let me tell you about. I don't know about dogs getting in water and things. They much more commonly um, will go after a a toad, which is a you know more of a terrestrial amphibian than being aquatic like frogs are. And uh, and when the first one that they they get their mouth around, they will foam considerably and have a little bit of an upset tummy and most of them at least the smart ones don't ever do it again so don't fear for your dogs the frogs don't pose a threat to them okay so then so then the frogs in the pond are really not going to hurt nothing in the pond no sir no sir okay. and they're going to do create some benefits as well really okay well, wonderful yeah. thank you bob have now, a great day I can't Sorry, legally t- I can't legally tell you to do this, and uh, a four by four foot pond's <laughs> not big enough. But if you told me you had a forty foot by forty foot pond, no, no. Uh, I would tell you just go out and catch some bass and put them in there, and and just call it a small stock tank. You can't keep them as Ooh. an aquarium thing, but uh, uh, probably the favorite food of uh, bass is frogs. Uh, really. And, you know, but a four foot, you're not going to be able to get a big enough fish in a in a 16 square foot pond to uh, to eliminate them that way. But uh, anybody listening out there that wants to reduce your frogs in a in a bigger pond, get yourself some largemouth bass, and you'll have a lot fewer frogs. Oh, incredible! Thank you, Bob. Have a great day. <laughs> great question, Hank. I appreciate the call. Always. Thank you. <laughs> Goodbye. All right, Loretta's up next. Uh, good morning, Loretta. Good morning. My problem, we have, and we have had for almost four years, a hedge of the gold mounting lantana. Okay. And I'm I'm wondering if they have a lifespan, because these last two years, they have been declining, and I've even replaced a few. And Mm -hmm. I'm wondering if maybe they're not what I need to have out there. And we feed them regularly and water them thoroughly. Right. So they've been. I was talking to them and telling them this was going to be their last year. We spent a fortune <laughs> on them. You know? It's well, crazy. it's okay. you know the the trade off for perennial color for perennials that flower mm-hmm. and give you you know some beauty out there is that they don't live as long as say a you know a shrub like a pittosporum or something like that. Oh. Uh, we've got the same gold dust acuba here in front of shades of green that we planted 37 or 38 years ago. So shrubs are much longer lasting, but they don't you know give you the all summer flowers that lantana do. Yes, I would say they have a lifespan. I would say on average it's probably going to be maybe 5 years or so. I've got some new gold 
old, you know, out in a bed in front of my barn that's uh, blooming. It's probably been in there about three years, and it's still going strong. But um, you're you're going to replace any perennial, whether it's firebush, whether it's uh, you know, lantana, whether it's phlox, mm-hmm. things like that, because they just simply don't live as long as trees and woody shrubs do. But um, the two things about uh, New Gold Lantana, the three things it loves are sun, fertilizer, and water. And, right. um, you know, that means thorough soaking with a hose or a, you know, drip irrigation system, not the the sprinkler system that waters your grass does not put down enough water to keep your lantana healthy in a summer as dry as this one has been. Uh, mm-hmm. You'd have to run, if you're relying on a, a sprinkler system, you'd probably have to run it for two hours or more to get the water as deeply in the soil as you need to. So most of the of the problems that I've seen with lantana this summer have been an issue of maybe they're getting often enough, but they weren't getting water deeply enough. So try a little bit deeper watering. Uh, if they, they also get a little insect issue called lace bug, and sometimes if it gets bad, you just have to cut them way back, fertilize them, and let them come out again. But uh, I would expect your lantana to last five to ten years. But uh, oh. that's only going to happen under ideal conditions. Well, I take real, you know, I feed them. I even give them rose go from your place, you know, the mm-hmm. special kind. Right. I don't know. I guess maybe I and we cut them down in the winter uh-huh. and feed them. And so I don't know. Well, I'll keep, since it's just four years, I'll keep trying. If not, and we get our house faces the west. And they uh-huh. unbelievable sun. Well, I'm going to tell you they're probably going to need water at least three times a week. And like I say, it's going to have to be a thorough deep watering. If you start seeing discoloration to the foliage, if the buds seem to start to grow, but then they don't open and bloom, you probably have this insect called lace bug on them. If so, uh, morning or evening, I'd spray with spinosad. I'd trim them lightly and feed them. Uh, I've seen a lot of lace bug around on Lantana this year because they have been stressed. And that may be what you're looking at, but it's one of those things they can't overcome and become beautiful once again. So look at that carefully. If you're not real sure, uh, cut a little tip off one of the stems and take to a good nursery and let them look at it. If you've got lace bug, it's easy to control. Um, but uh, that would be the only thing that I would tell you is really going to make the lantana look bad unless they're just not getting enough deep, deep watering. Because it now the range yesterday, some people got a good range yesterday. Most of us, I got uh, what thirty-eight one hundreds, which is not really enough to soak the soil. But this is this has just been a dry summer, and you go down, you know, six, eight, ten inches down into the soil where the lantana's roots are, and that soil is very, very dry. So uh, uh, check for lace bugs, water them a little more deeply. Trim them lightly if you need to, and you should have some new growth and some good new blooms this fall. All right. Well, I'll try that. But we always cut them down because they do tend to freeze. So Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'll try them another year then and baby them like I have been. Well, thank well, you so much. Good to talk you, with you. Love you. You call show. me any anytime you have questions. I'm always here to help you. Bye-bye. Thank you, Loretta. Bye. All right. Back to gardening on this beautiful morning and straight back to the phone lines. It would be Wayne's turn next. Uh, good morning, Wayne. Good morning, Bob. How are you this morning? Uh, it's just a beautiful morning. Day's off to a great start. Absolutely. 
Listen, I'm still feeling some issues with my okra. It's still producing, but uh, the tops of it have defoliated. And uh, it seems like it's got a small bug that I don't. They look like ants, but I'm not sure mm-hmm. if they are. They uh, are. They're fire ants. They're yep. fire ants. Okay. Yeah, it's one What's of the few plants that fire ants will eat. Um, you can discourage the fire ants uh, using uh, dry molasses around the base of the plants. Or for me, I would put out. Uh, there is a granular organic bait. Uh, it's called Come and Get It. It's actually by Fertilome. It's one of the organic products they produce. And um, you put it out morning or evening and won't hurt your okra at all, and it's death to the fire ants. Now, the leaf loss is kind of normal in August. It's mainly because the plants aren't getting as much water as they would really like. But um, I, I would increase, you know, the increase your watering, put out a little bit of uh uh, come and get it for the fire ants and just stretch it out as, you know, the production as long as possible. The plants are going to look worse over time, but, uh, I generally am picking okra all the way up until October. The volume decreases as it cools off. It loves it hot, but, uh, I think you just need a little bit more water and, uh, need to get the fire ants under control because it's, fire ants don't eat many plants, but okra is sure one that they will get. And then when you go to pick, they get you. So, so uh, uh, one place that I eliminate fire, fire ants for sure. Very good. I will do that. I got one other question. Um, I've, I've tried uh, some cuttings a few years back, and uh, was I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm busy, so I don't have a whole lot of time. I, I, I'm wanting to go ahead and kind of scale back and start slower, but I've got a lantana that I really like. Okay. And uh, is this a good time for playing around with that and uh, working with lantana cuttings? Well, you can certainly, you know, successfully take lantana cuttings this time of year. Um, The secrets to rooting um, cuttings and whenever we can get back to being able to teach classes, I mean, they're letting people go back to school, but they're still not, you know, really allowing us as businesses to have gatherings of more than 10 people. But, uh, Next time I give one of our free classes on propagation coming, I'll teach you all the theory and everything behind it. But uh, propagating lantana cuttings, you need to keep your cuttings short, usually about two, three inches in length. You need to take off any buds or blooms. I would soak them in a liquid seaweed blend, uh, maybe just a little bit of garret juice, soak them for about 30 minutes. The material that I root them in is the white volcanic material called perlite. And um, what I use is either a tray or a big shallow pot, and I put, oh, you know, in an 8-inch pot, which is I frequently what I use for propagating. I'll put maybe as many as 25 or 30 cuttings in there. Uh, there's no danger of keeping them too wet. Your commercial growers are going to have them under a mist system that comes on 10, 15 times a day. Uh, because the perlite is so open, it has so much oxygen in it, there's no danger of suffocating them with watering too often. Uh, but if you let them get dry, you're going to have problems with them. I put them in a bright but shady spot. I would water them daily, and uh, I know you're a busy person. If you have the opportunity, I use a little mist nozzle, and just every time uh, um, I walk by them, mist down those cuttings, and you should have virtually 100% success. But like I say, if you uh, if you neglect them, especially on the water end of the deal, uh, you're not going to do well with them. Very good. I, I'm always worried about... 
about you know inducing disease and stuff with them or causing them a lot. But that I tried the perlite. I've never tried that. I'll go find me some perlite. Yeah. Well, per perlite is a totally inert, totally uh, it's actually a volcanic material. It wasn't made for horticulture. It's made to make lightweight concrete. It's just turned out to be an excellent thing to root in because. Uh, it's it's sterile. It's not going to have the bacteria and fungi that may, would cause things to decompose. And one of the nice things about perlite, you know, I'd, I'd recommend that you sterilize it after every three or four batches of cuttings. But that doesn't mean you have to throw it out and start all over. You can stick it in the oven at, you know, 350 degrees. It's already been heated up to about 6,000 degrees to make it. So spending, you know, 30 minutes in the oven is not going to hurt it. And you can sterilize it and use it over and over and over over again but uh it's if it's what i root virtually all my propagation is going to be in perlite you can also use clean sharp sand but perlite's lightweight it's cheap and there's just no problems associated with it uh get it from a good nursery i would recommend uh there's some perlite coming out of mexico that's uh, fluoride contaminated but anything you get from a nursery is probably going to be in great shape it's inexpensive and you can use it over and over and over very good. Well, Bob, I sure appreciate it. You have a wonderful rest of your Sunday. I'll go on listening to you. Thank you. I appreciate it, Wayne. You enjoy your Sunday as well. Let's move on and see what Diane is up to this morning. Uh, good morning, Diane. I'm picking up sticks from the amazing rainstorms we've had this week. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad this is my favorite Diane on the other end of the line. But, uh, it's yeah, it depends on where you were. Roberta was under the right cloud. I think she had just a little over an inch and a half. Uh, I had 38 one-hundredths, but... Uh, um, you know, it's, um, it's any, any rain is good and some folks got more than others. So I hope you were under the right cloud and got a good rain. We got two, we got an inch, which came with a lot of wind, thus the limb. And then we got a half inch here recently. So yeah, very, very happy. So here's my question. I have several cedar elms, but I have two not happy. One of them has lost most of its leaves but they've come off they didn't die on the tree right so i have that one which has a little bit of a root flare i could probably dig some back some more back you should you should dig it back some more okay the other tree has most of its leaves but it is now starting to have leaves die on the tree so I, I don't want to wait too long to cut them down and have them fall over because they're near fences and houses and stuff like that. But I don't want to cut them down prematurely. So when do I know that their day is done? What, what I would tell you more than anything else is probably, and you can do this yourself or you can get somebody with an air spade to do it, but really go below the root flare um, I mean, you know, go down about six inches. You're probably going to fill it back in after you do this. But I would worry about a circling, girdling root. And um, what I've learned over the years from uh, David Vaughn and Ed Etter and the people that I deal with is it doesn't have to go all the way around the tree to be a problem. If that tree, long before you had it, 
Uh, if it stayed in a pot and you've got a root that simply is going along one side of the trunk, it's pinching into the trunk and it will definitely reduce the health of the tree. I mean, when we had them over here for a demonstration and let everybody come see how an air spade worked, uh, we uncovered an old ash tree in the parking lot and found numerous problems with the root system. So uh, cedar elm should live for close to 100 years. I mean, there, it's okay. not dying of old age. It's, it's dying because it has a problem. And, yeah. um, and these are, that, these are probably native. They probably okay. grew here on their own because of what mm-hmm. used to, you know, be here before this neighborhood was developed. Right. But if so. you've got, you know, if you got something in the soil obstructing it, or sometimes, you know, trees just do themselves in with the way their root systems grow. But to me, it would be, it would be worth it. Uh, and of course, you have more soil and less rock than some of us do, so you may be able to do it without professional help. But I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna be digging down really deeper down around that tree. I may wait till fall to do it, but I want to see if we don't have an issue with a with a girdling root situation there. And you know, if you've ever watched it or if you've watched a professional do this you have to remove girdling roots very carefully because the pressure builds up from that trunk pushing against them and the root pushing back um, if you're not real careful in what you're doing that thing when you cut it can actually pop out and um, and people not being careful with what they're doing are injured by flying roots and more often by the cutting tool that they were cutting with just suddenly gets thrown back at them. So that's, you know, I'm not seeing your trees, so I can't tell you for sure, but um, that would be the most likely culprit in my book. Cedar elms are resistant to just about every kind of insect and disease issue out there that you know gets after ash trees and things like that so i'm going to be looking at the root systems where i'm going to be looking for problems okay and then i have a quick follow-up to your last call so i started some cuttings after talking to you of some american beauty berries (laughs) and how do i know that they have taken like do they grow new leaves or Sometimes the they deal? grow new leaves before they form roots. I just gently tug up on them. I just gently lift my cutting in the pot of perlite. And the thing is, the the critical period for rooting a cutting is right when the roots start to form. And you can take that cutting out and pot it up. If those little roots are an eighth of an inch long, that cutting's going to take off and do very well for you. You don't have to wait until it has a big root system in the perlite before you take it out. So I'm just going to take my thumb and forefinger, lift up gently on the cuttings. If they seem like they're sliding out of the perlite easy, not rooted enough yet. If I feel some resistance, then I probably have enough roots uh, to, uh, you know, to go ahead and get them into soil. And in my experience, it doesn't, you know, increase their chances of surviving and growing vigorously. Letting you get a bunch of roots in perlite doesn't seem to do a whole lot better than uh, repotting them when those roots first start to appear. So okay. just, just lift and lift up. If you feel resistance, it's probably rooted. Okay, and then I put them in like a four-inch pot and overwinter them that way, like a little of potting soil. Depends on the plant, but generally, yes. Okay, 
And what about a newly seeded Pride of Barbados? Should I overwinter it in a little four-inch pot and then put it in in the spring in the ground? How big is it now? How tall? Oh, they're they're pretty tiny. Okay, One of, definitely. Like, I'd, I'd, yeah, I'd overwinter them in a four-inch pot. If they're six or eight inches tall, i move them up to a gallon container and overwinter them that way. But Pride of Barbados is not going to go outside until it grows up a bit. Okay. Awesome. Thank you so much, Bob. You are get so, well, you uh, get back to enjoying your Sunday. But, no, the watching the for new growth to appear on a cutting that you're rooting is uh, totally unreliable because many plants, you'll have lots of growth start out of the top before the first root starts to form. So use, uh, use the uh, just kind of tug method on that. And if you have any further questions, you know where to find me. Yes, sir. Have a great day. Do you the same, Diane. Thank you so much. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right. Back to gardening and back to the phone line. It's going to be John and Irma and Chicken Joe and Ann and John is first. Good morning, John. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, I want to make a comment on uh, two of your callers when you two of the callers called in. Uh-huh. Uh, I use, I use a water pick. That is just a half inch pipe with a T okay. on the end of it and then a nipple on the back. And then you get a, a water hose connection on it. And uh-huh. I could dig, I could dig a hole two feet deep in my black dirt. I could dig a hole two feet deep in about 30 seconds. It takes about Great 30 idea. Seconds. Fantastic and idea. It, it, it's the same thing that Malcolm had, uh, uh, yeah. uh years and years ago. Yeah, and uh, and, and we should caution people, too, don't ever use a pressure washer. A pressure washer has enough uh, force to actually blow the bark off of things. But what you're describing, that uh, uh, Malcolm's (laughs) deep watering device, that would be an excellent way if you have soft enough soil to use it. Thank you for bringing that up. Well, I I have black dirt because I live on the south side, and I use just regular city water pressure. And I, I can aerate my soil if I want to, or else I can, if I want to put a post in the ground, I can dig the hole two, two and a half feet deep with a uh, with a water pick, and then all I have to do is clean it out with the. Uh, and all I do is clean you're it just, out. With you're the, just uh, making me so jealous with the iron bar that I have to use to dig dig a hole in my <laughs> soil. But uh, it it is a great way to do it, where you have uh, black soil or sandy soil for that matter. Yeah, your water pick is uh, is a great way to dig. And, and another uh, uh, caller that you had was talking about frogs. Uh, frogs eat, don't they eat mosquitoes and mosquito larvae and flying mosquitoes as well and June bugs and uh, all sorts of other <laughs> all sorts of other creatures. And uh, um, I, I enjoy the night sounds they make, but uh, I've been camping in the woods when, you know, it, it took a little while to get to sleep. But it makes such a deafening roar. And it's kind of fun around the nursery. We sometimes get some of these little uh, what are called green tree fro- frogs, uh, properly called hyla. And that's the littlest frog with the biggest voice I have ever <laughs> seen. But, uh, no, I don't really know any, any negatives to the frogs we have around here. And uh, like you say, they do a lot of good. And I, well, I have another story about them, and this is a, a totally natural way of uh, of uh, using frogs. Mm-hmm. My uh, my son-in-law my lives in uh, Corpus, and uh, he's got a window unit that 
backs onto a patio and he feeds his cats under the patio uh, right under the window unit and the, the water drops down into the on the patio and they gets the uh the, yeah, cat- the condensate <laughs> clean as best water around yeah well it 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 uh it gets the cat food a little damp well he's got about three or four frogs that sits there in one place and looks out and gets the flies the flies land on the cat mm-hmm. food the frog kit uh, eats the flies, and, and we sat there and watched the frogs eat flies, and, yeah. and they got rid of all their flies that way. Yeah, yeah, and of course, to be correct, we're talking about in this case toads rather than frogs. But uh, uh, yeah, they're they're great things. Listen, I'm getting a little short on time. Did you have a question I can help you with? Well, you got it. That's all I wanted to say. Thank you. Bye. I sure do appreciate it. Thank you, John. And let's see if we can get Irma in here before the news break. Good morning, Irma. Yes, this is Marty. This is Irma's husband, and how are you this morning, Bob? I'm good, Marty. Thank you. Thank uh, you listen, very much. I got a couple of questions. Four, four questions, Irma says. <laughs> okay, on my fig tree, it was doing great, and all of a sudden, it lost all its leaves, and the fruit never really matured. They never really got big. Did the leaves turn yellow and drop off? Yes. Got too dry. Figs do not ever want to get dry. And, uh, yeah, dropping yellow leaves, uh, uh, it'll probably come back out. They normally do if they're established, but that that's an easy one. It just got too dry at some point. Okay. On my peach tree, I didn't get new, no fruit this year. Did it bloom? Um, it's got leaves. I got leaves on it, but no, did, I never. Did you get flowers? Did you get flowers? Yeah, very few. Okay. Um, you have to have flowers and you have to have cross-pollination. Uh, if you don't get any peaches, it's a sign either the blooms didn't get pollinated or we had some late cold uh, that, uh, you know, kept them from developing, that just frosted them in effect. But um, uh, lack of flowering, you know, it, it that can be a, a varietal issue because you have to be real careful in you know, choosing peaches that, that fit into the cold chilling uh, that we normally get in the winter in any given area. But if you get flowers uh, and still don't get any fruit, either you haven't got good pollination or something happened after the flowers got pollinated, like a late frost or something like that. I've, peach trees take a lot of uh, fertilizer. They need to be thinned out, pruning thinning them out every January, February. So, uh, Fertilize water and thin them heavily, and we'll hope for more peaches next year. Okay. And on my citrus trees, I got two grapefruit trees. Uh huh. And I've got enormous sized grapefruits. When is a good time to trim those long branches that are hanging down? I trim them while they're in bloom in the spring. The reason I choose that time is I can take out the limbs that have the fewest flowers and therefore will have the least fruit and uh, leave the ones that have more flowers and therefore will have more fruit. Uh, you can prune them almost any time. Fall is not a good time, but I prune them when they're in flower because that way I get the most fruit from them. Let me get Chris to put you on hold. We'll get the next question after the news. This is South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. Talk to Bob now. 210-599-5555. 
But as always, or not always, but most of the time, there are no open lines by the time you hear that sounder. So hang on just a minute. We're going to get another question from Marty, and then we will have an open line that you can go further and talk to Chicken Joe and Ann. Back to the phone lines. Marty, let's get that uh, fourth question in there. (laughs) Okay. All right. My wife is growing an avocado tree, which is approximately six inches tall. Okay. How long should she keep it in a pot before she tries to put it in the ground? And where approximately do you live? In the uh, northeast side. Okay. I keep it. I keep it in the pot about twenty-five or thirty years. Ooh, that long. <laughs> because see, here's the thing: when when you're starting an avocado from a seed, you're getting one of the California avocado varieties that is not cold hardy that will freeze and die here you know, with the first hard winter. So oh. if you, I mean, you can put it, if if I were going to put it in the ground and plan on protecting it every winter or every winter that we have a freeze, which is most winters, mm-hmm. um, I'd let it get, uh, I'd probably keep it in a pot through the winter months and put it out in the spring. But if I was really hoping to grow avocados without having to run out and cover it every time it gets cold, there are some varieties of avocados that are generally, they're called Mexican avocados but uh that doesn't really say a whole lot about them just some of the ones that are grown in northern mexico where they get cold weather just uh you're not going to get any avocado when we get temperatures that get down in the low teens but the so-called mexican avocados like joey and layla and uh oh they're a bunch of different ones they only have to be protected about the first two years, and then they will generally take all the cold we get in San Antonio. There's a fellow around the corner from uh, the nursery here. You know, we're we're sort of uh, near the quarry is where our nursery is located, and this guy must get a thousand avocados off his tree every every uh, year. But when you're growing the Haas, the Calavo, the avocados you're getting from the grocery store, unless you have a super super protected area, you're going to wind up covering those things uh, every winter. The other option, and the reason I was joking with you, is some people will keep them in a pot and just keep moving them in and out and in and out until uh, until they get too big for the house but uh it's fun everybody just about everybody i know that's ever grown anything has grown an avocado from seed but very few people uh you know have managed to get them up to maturity because it takes about eight years from a seed before they even mature enough to start producing avocados so if uh you're growing one for fun yeah keep it in the pot as long as you can if you really want to get avocados uh visit a good nursery and get one of the cold hardy varieties okay where's your nursery at (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, I'm going to be honest with you. Phoenix probably has a better selection of avocados than we do right now. Uh, call before you go anywhere. Our nursery is, uh, we're called Shades of Green, and we're between the quarry and the airport on the north side on Sunset Road. And uh, we're simply out of avocados right now. Like citrus, the growers never anticipated how many people were going to decide to get into gardening this year. And uh, um they just didn't grow enough of them. And if anybody has any in stock, it probably would be Fanix. Uh, by, you know, fall or spring, most all of us will have them in stock. But don't come running over here looking for an avocado or a lemon tree right now because uh, we're probably three weeks away from having any more of them here. But uh, give Fanix a call. They're good people, and they carry a lot of avocados. Fanix is the number one nursery we go to. They are well, very good. 
Yeah, check with Mark or Mike, and uh, and uh, they, you know, and and remember that even the cold hardy ones, as long as they have smooth bark, uh, they can have cold damage. Once they start forming rough bark, they'll generally take every winter that San Antonio throws our way. But uh, uh, first year or two, you may have to even protect the Mexican varieties. But again, this one I'm talking about that's around the corner from us. Uh, this thing must be 25 feet tall and 30 feet wide, and it's obviously been through a lot of winters now. I think it's joey just looking at the fruit i think that's the variety this one is but uh there's several there's several good mexican varieties out there all righty bob thank you very much and you have a safe week and a fine sunny sunday (laughs) well i appreciate that and you tell irma not to be a chicken about talking to me on the phone i'm happy to talk to you but i'm happy to talk to her as well so you guys have a wonderful know. (laughs) all right (laughs) Okay, well, let's move along and talk to Chicken Joe. What's going on this morning, Joe? Hey, hey, Bob, I got a couple of questions about worm castings. Okay, for here or for Colorado? Colorado. Okay. Uh, I've been brewing worm tea this summer, and uh-huh. uh, about a week ago I realized I've been keeping my 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 castings in an airtight container, and, and I'm concerned because... Well, my basic question, my first question is, when we brew the worm tea, which is nothing but compost tea using worm castings, um, are we actually uh, cultivating microbes that are already in the worm castings, or are we just feeding microbes that come out of the air or whatever? No, you're you're cultivating. Worm castings are loaded with a huge variety of microbes, a wide assortment of beneficial bacteria and fungi, and you're just propagating the ones that are in the worm castings. Now, you only want to be propagating aerobic bacteria, so I would never seal that. Now, it doesn't have to have a lot of air, but... uh, uh, if yeah. you if you seal something up, then you start getting anaerobic organisms like yeah. you know uh, botulism and tetanus and things like that. Yeah. But uh, yeah. you don't have to worry about that in your compost tea because unless your compost tea goes anaerobic, none of those. Even if you add bad stuff in the compost, uh, it's not going to be yeah. the bad stuff's not going to be propagated in. Uh, and we we all talk about compost tea, and it ought to be referred to as AACT, actively aerated compost tea. And you're yeah, never going to have a problem right. in there, but you're not going to get a lot of okay. good stuff. Yeah, uh, you know, yeah. if, if uh, your your container's been sealed too tightly. Right. Well, when I foliar when I've been foliar spraying and fomenting with the uh, the straight tea, uh, do you recommend diluting it? You know, because it's kind of expensive to make. Oh yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, we usually dilute it, uh, you know, probably at minimum 10 to 1 or more likely 20 to 1. Remember that water is just a carrier, and ideally a gallon of compost tea should treat about 1,000 square feet uh, of area. So it doesn't matter whether you can cover it with adding one gallon of water to it or 20 gallons of water to it. The water is just spreading it around. So um, how, how much you use will depend on your sprayer and where you set your sprayer. But, uh, no, I, I think uh, the pros that do it, I think they use about 40 gallons per acre. But uh, around your yeah. house, I'd, I'd just be diluting it about 20 to 1 or 16 to 1, which is what okay. a siphon mixer is going to do. Yeah. Okay. Uh, all right, real quick, I want to know what's the magic trick for making tomatoes ripen. i got about 200 tomatoes on my bushes, and they just, dead gum things, they don't seem to want to ripen. They want sunshine and warmth. 
And oh, um, well, I got the sunshine. <laughs> yep. <laughs> well, and 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 again, uh, for those of y'all that don't know the Joe I'm talking to, he's not talking to us from San Antonio. He's a, he's a little further north in some beautiful country. So uh, you're just gonna have to be patient with them if uh, okay. freezing yeah. weather approaches, which I don't think you're seeing yet, but you could. No. Then you're gonna have yeah. to bring them in and let them finish the ripening process on the windowsill. But uh, uh, sunshine and warmth, you know, even even yeah. in your even in your winter home here in San Antonio, uh, as the further we get into the fall, the longer it takes the tomatoes to ripen because of the temperature. Right, issue. right, right. Well, I uh, I joked about not having the warmth a minute ago, but actually it was 99 yesterday. So we're not as hot as San Antonio, but we're getting up there. Yeah, but at least you usually right. have cool and beautiful mornings. So it's good to hear your voice, and uh, okay. you have a good day, and we'll talk again okay, soon. Okay, we'll see you October or January, depending on what's happening. Okay. <laughs> Look forward to it, Joe. Thank you, sir. Goodbye. All right. Let's go ahead and talk to Ann. Let's squeeze one more call in here before a break. Good morning, Ann. Good morning, Bob. Thank you for your time. Well, my pleasure. I have some succulents that um, I've kind of goofed up on. <laughs> I <laughs> think I way. watered them too much. Um, but I still have a few that are... Uh, working well with me and in order to propagate them do i just break off a little piece and slide it into the dirt or is there a, a more scientific method well you know succulents cover a wide wide range of plants and how you propagate them is going to depend on what kind of succulents you have um, you didn't hurt them by watering them too much you may have heard them by watering them too often because okay. succulents are just like other plants in that when they get watered, they want to really get flooded, but then they don't want to be watered again. And uh, we find more often than water, the issue is light. So uh, in general, you know, reduce the frequency of watering, increase the amount of light you have, and things will do better. Now, if the plants are in the uh, genus, uh, the sedums, like burrow's tail, and, you know, there are 15, 20 different sedums, you can break off individual leaves and just lay them on top of perlite, and every leaf will form a new plant. Um, if it is a, uh, a succulent like euphorbia, um, you want to take your cutting, but you always want to let the stem callus for a day or two before you put it in the uh, in your rooting material. Um, if you're growing things like uh, jade plants or petalanthus, the red bird plants, or you know echeverias, many of your more upright succulents, uh, and and most of those will also root from a single leaf, but uh, you'll get a, a bigger plant more quickly if you take a a cutting from it and have at least a little bit of a section of a stem on there take off the lower leaves and then root those in perlite but um, it it would all depend on what kind of succulents there are other things like uh, sansevarius for instance uh, mother-in-law's tongue snake plant whatever you want to call it you can root cuttings from a single leaf in fact you can take a single leaf and cut up in 20 pieces and every one of those 20 pieces will make a new plant but on some of the things like sansevieria the plants that grow from the leaf cuttings may or may not look like the parents. There's a beautiful sansevieri with a yellow stripe called Laurenti. And, uh, but if you, if you, and if you take divisions from the base, they come back through and look exactly like the parent plant. But if you slice up a leaf on sansevieri Laurenti, every leaf will make a new plant, but to be solid green, they'll lose the yellow stripe. So my only 
point in telling you all of this is is there's no one simple answer of how do I propagate a succulent. Uh, let me know what kind you have, and uh, I'll tell you what I think would be the best procedure for rooting them, but it really, really does vary depending on the variety. Um, I unfortunately did not buy them from your lovely place. <laughs> That's um, all right. There are lots the- of other good people out there. <laughs> Um, these look like miniature jade. Okay. Um, um, and I, they're delightful. Mm-hmm. Um, but as I said, I think I'm overwatered, and they're very limp, and they have some sort of a white uh, cottony thing all up and down the stems. They probably um, have an insect on them. You may want to spray with a little bit of spinosad before you do anything else, but uh, those would generally be rooted in perlite, and you would just take a section that has at least two or three leaves on it and maybe minimum half inch of stem and you can root but need to get them healthy you know you don't go you don't go have an operation you know you don't go get uh you know you don't have an operation if you've got the flu you wait till you get healthy before you go have an operation and Mm -hmm. if you've got a plant that's really suffering from an issue like too frequent watering Cuttings will not root well at all. You need to try to get the plant a little healthier. It needs to perk up. It needs to be putting on a little bit of new growth on its own, and then you'll probably propagate it successfully. But uh, if it's already half dead, uh, you need to you need to try to get in better shape because cuttings from those plants do not root well. Cuttings from others should get almost 100% success. Okay, so, so for the ones that are healthy, uh, perlite, uh, two or three stems together, and um, some well, just that. just one stem, but at least half an inch to an inch of stem, and two or three leaves on that stem, oh, and those okay. should be almost a hundred percent successful. Um, I, now, when I root things, I rarely root one plant in a pot. I'll have a bigger pot full of perlite, and I may have from five to fifty cuttings in the pot, depending on what I'm doing. Simply because I don't have that much space. But uh, um, what you're talking about, if I had a six-inch pot full of perlite, I'd probably put six or eight cuttings in there at a time, bigger pots proportionately more. But first thing we need to do is get that plant a little healthier before you start cutting on it. Okay. All righty. Thank you so much, always. It's always a pleasure. It's good to talk to you, Ann. Thank you. Have a nice Goodbye. All right, let's get back to gardening. It's going to be Kenneth and Tom and Janie and Ralph, and Kenneth is up first. Good morning, Kenneth. Good morning. Hey, morning, I got sir. a problem. Oh, I think it's a little Mexican sycamore tree I got here. Okay. And I, I believe it got struck by lightning. I came home one day and all the bark's on the ground. Uh-huh. But it survived the summer, and now it's just blown all of its leaves. And it's got sprouts coming up from the bottom. So what are what do I do? Well, it could easily be uh, could it easily be a lightning strike. Uh, now sycamores shed their bark. I mean, they are something we call an exfoliating uh, tree, and they're always dropping bark. But if it it's just a whole lot at one time, I had a lightning uh, strike hit a sycamore down on my creek, a big old hollow tree, and actually set the inside of the tree on fire. <laughs> so that's the problem you get when you make a nice big tall straight tree, and then we've got these thunderstorms. If indeed, uh, you know, the tree, if it was a lightning strike, uh, the top of the tree is probably not going to come out again. And how how thick through would you say the trunk is on your tree? Oh, maybe about four inches. It's only like, I went planted like four, maybe five years ago. Yep. 
He's about okay, well, I think, foot tall. Yeah, I think I think it can be can be saved, so to speak. If you told me it was, you know, two feet in diameter, I'd tell you just plant a new tree. But on this one, um I'm gonna let that new growth start out from the base and I'm oh gonna let it get two, three feet tall, and then I'm gonna go through and I'm gonna remove all except the longest, tallest sprout. And then I'm going to let that one come up and make the new trunk. I'm going to cut the old one off maybe three or four feet above the ground, high enough up that I'm not worried about messing up the new growth that's coming out from ground level. But um, uh, it is possible, you know, in nature sometimes an animal eats the top off, something happens to the top of the tree, and it simply sprouts out and grows. Uh, we call them a trunk. The arborists call them a new central leader. And if it's a really big tree... Uh, then that little secondary trunk coming up will never be real strong, will never be well attached to the base. But a tree that's, you know, just three, four years old, three, four inches in diameter, um, if I were doing it, like I say, I'd, I'd let several of those little sprouts come out. I'd let them fight it out for, you know, the first year, probably next spring or over the winter months when the leaves are off of it. Choose the biggest, strongest, best-looking one and take all the others out. Oh, okay. Yeah, I was starting to enjoy it. It got tall enough to give me a little shade, but yeah. oh, well, guess i start well, over again. <laughs> and, well, but for you, for anybody else listening out there, it's relatively inexpensive to uh, have a lightning rod put in the top of trees, and it's uh, it's a lifesaver. You know, had you had a lightning rod in the top of that tree or even halfway up that tree, your tree would be alive and healthy today. And I just, I feel for these people that have these uh, uh, just really beautiful, huge trees, and a lightning strike takes them out. Now, lightning bolts, uh, they can be extraordinarily powerful, extraordinarily powerful. They can just vaporize the sap in a tree and just turn it to toothpicks or they can blow the bark off the side of the tree or somewhere in between. But a lightning rod will protect your tree no matter, you know, how strong the lightning bolt is. So if you've got a big tree and a valuable tree, spend, I think, about 100 bucks is what it usually costs, and uh, uh, it's sure worth it. Uh, a lot of people have the good sense to put lightning protection on their house. I have it on my house and my barn, but they neglected to put it in, in their very valuable trees. And it's uh, not a difficult process and not a real expensive thing to do. Okay. So I appreciate the info now. Well, I appreciate the call. You get out and have a good Sunday, and I'm sure we'll talk again. I sure will. Thank you. Thanks, Kenneth. Bye. Okay, Tom's up next. Good morning, Tom. Morning. I was calling to see if you could recommend a uh, small size oleander. I don't want it to get too big. Yeah. The good news and the bad news is, um, well, the good news is that oleanders are beautiful. They'll take a lot of heat. They'll take a lot of drought. They'll take a lot of sun, and they bloom beautifully. Bad news is the dwarfer ones are not very cold hardy. And uh, they are going to be much more likely to suffer in a in a really cold winter. Um, are you going to grow this in a pot, or are you going to put it in the ground? Well, um, I'm kind of in your area. I don't really like digging holes, so I was thinking about pots. 
Okay. Uh, if you put a dwarf oleander in a pot, you're probably going to have to give it winter protection. If you're willing to do that, um, then there's one out there that's just called uh, dwarf red that uh, will be will do very well. And like I say, these are semi-tropical forms, and they bloom. I mean, they their blooms put the big ones uh, in the shade, so to speak, as far as number of flowers and length of bloom season. There's another one that's kind of an apricot color that... Oh gosh, I don't know that I've ever really heard the name on it, but really, I, I picked the, up two of them. I picked uh-huh. up two recently. They're Nerium oleander petite reds. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, well, Nerium is just the uh, is just the scientific name. Petite red is a good dwarf red. Yeah, it is one of the good ones. Okay, and, and now that yeah. you mentioned, I think petite salmon may be the other one, and uh, salmon. Uh, yeah, just uh, just be aware that if the temperature drops uh, 25 or below, I'm either going to have that plant covered or inside because they can freeze and die. Big ones, I've seen them go down to zero and still survive, but uh, the dwarf ones just are not as cold hardy. Um, I don't think this would be a problem for you, but there's also a disease that has killed so many oleanders across the United States that many nurseries have just stopped growing them. It's called bacterial leaf scorch, and uh, but it's not going to be a problem in a small plant you've got in a pot. It's spread by a, a thrips insect, but uh, just if you're at the nursery picking out your petite red, if you're getting any more, obviously you already have a couple of them, but always um, you know look at one that has good healthy foliage because unfortunately some people sell disease plants without knowing it. But uh, those are just the warnings. Uh, they're a wonderful plant, they're a wonderful color, but uh, many people are not aware that they are not real cold hardy. So uh, that's what I'm trying to tell you about. So uh, get them and enjoy them. All right, well, I appreciate it. You're going to save me from having to dig a hole with the iron stick. Steel <laughs> bar. You're, you're welcome, and uh, but don't call me when you hurt your back dragging that thing in in the winter months. <laughs> Tom's always good no to problem. talk to you. Have a wonderful Sunday. Thank you very much. Thank you, thank you, sir. Goodbye. All right, back to gardening. We've got Janie and Ralph and John and Karen waiting, and Janie was first up. Good morning, Janie. Good morning, Bob. Good morning. I forgot to ask you a question yesterday. Well, I'm uh, glad you got back through. I bought me an orchid, okay? And the reason mm-hmm. I bought it because they look real healthy. The <laughs> roots were all green, beautiful. So I said, I'm going to buy it. So I have it at home, and I've had it all over two weeks. But I noticed that when I'm going to water it, I do it like you tell me. Uh, mm-hmm. Put it in the sink and let it drain a uh, lot of water. But I noticed it in the pot, it's, it's got a lot of roots, and I'm thinking that it's, it's too small, the pot. And I'm wondering if I should take it out and put it in a bigger pot. When it finishes blooming for you, I would definitely do that. Uh, but to to transplant it would be hard on the flowers. The flowers probably wouldn't last that long. Being in a pot that is too small is not going to bother their orchid because in nature they don't grow in pots. They grow... Uh, that one that you have is probably Phalaenopsis, and in nature it'd be right. clinging to the side of a tree, and those roots would be growing eight feet in all directions. So uh, it does not hurt this type of orchid to be root bound, as you might say. But the problem is that most of these orchids that are sold by the grocery stores and box stores, uh, they come out of Taiwan, they grow them in sphagnum moss, which 
basically doesn't, it works fine in a greenhouse, but in your home it doesn't dry out evenly. And when the plant has finished flowering, uh, yes, I would take it out of the pot. I would kind of peel away that sphagnum moss, and I would put it in a bark. No, it's not in a piece of moss. It's it's on the other kind of materials that you talk about. It's already in in bark? Yes, yes. Okay, well, very good. My compliments on getting it from somebody that knows what they're doing. But, uh, you know, the only two times that I recommend repotting plants is... uh, Either when it gets, they're so root-bound it's hard to keep them watered, or when the plant gets too heavy that it just falls over all the time. But a, uh, and, and this is the Phalaenopsis orchid, the one that has a spike that right, comes up, right. that has a bunch of flowers. Yes, okay. a lot it, of it. Yeah, it's it's what we call a monopodial orchid, which means it grows upright. It has a stem that grows upright. It doesn't spread out. The leaves get bigger. But other orchids like dendrobiums and cattleyas and oncidiums, many of these others are called sympodial, and they have to go into bigger pots because they grow out sideways and, uh, you know, and just grow over the side of the pot and hang down. But your phalaenopsis, it, uh, it, it, I've seen phalaenopsis that were enormous plants still in three or four inch pots. So, uh, yes, you might, might go up to a six inch pot after it finishes flowering, but don't be in any rush. That, that plant is not suffering. One bit from being in a small okay. pot. I, saw, I you, see all those roots, you know. I could see right <laughs> through the pot, and oh, I yeah. thought, oh my God, maybe I need to put it in a bigger pot. But you should leave you, it in there, so I, I'm not going to touch it. I'll, I'll tell you a story about. Uh, an aunt of mine, many years ago, I had given her an orchid. She put it in her kitchen window, and that plant had flowers on it constantly for about two and a half years, and the roots just grew all over um, the windowsill. She came home one day, and the lady that helped around the house uh, said, Oh, Ms. Riddell, I did such a nice thing. I trimmed all those ugly roots off oh that plant God. in your window. And it was two years before that plant bloomed again. So, <laughs> you know, it's perfectly normal. Remember, in nature, that orchid would be on the side of a tree, and those roots might be 30 feet long. So, uh, okay. uh it's not like the eggplant that ate Chicago. It's not going to attack you. It's just going to sit there, and the more roots it has, the happier it is. But if you want to go into a bigger pot, uh, you can do it after it's finished flowering, Janie. What size should I put it in? So it's in about a three or four inch pot now. Uh, looks pretty small. Yes. I'd, I'd go to a six inch pot. Okay. Thanks a whole lot. Okay. <laughs> You're sure welcome, Janie. Thank you. Okay. Bye. Okay, Ralph is up next. Good morning, Ralph. Morning, sir. How you doing? I'm got doing it well. Got How about you? I'm sorry. I'm doing well myself. Got a question Good. on a rose bush. Yes, I had uh, fed it with some Hasselbrook, mm-hmm. both rose bushes. One of them it didn't bother. The other one, it's, uh, I don't know, it looks like it, 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 it's dying. I got two socks on it. That's it. One of them's got a, like a bronze-looking streak in it. Okay. Well, there are two kinds of has to grow. There's has to grow plants, there's has to grow lawn. Has to grow plant would be great for roses. Has to grow lawn might be a little strong. Are you sure it's has to grow plant that you fertilized with? Yeah. Yes, sir. Okay. Um, something else is going on with the rose. You've got kind of, uh, you say, yellow streaks in the stem, and the plant is no, it's, looking. Uh, it's a. Uh, a, a real light green stem, it looks like a bronze. 
Mm-hmm. A real, real dark brown. And is it in the ground or is it in a container? No, it's in the ground. Okay. We um, put her in the ground when we first moved in. We've had no problem until this year. They get a, it, it's called a stem dieback. And is is the brown in the stem all the way down to the ground, or is it just partially down the plant, and then you get down to green wood as you get toward the base of the plant? Well, it, it goes all the way down the stem to the, the, the I guess it's a root knot. Yeah, well, it's a graft it, point on there. Yeah, it um, uh, it didn't have anything to do with the fertilizer, but okay. they get they get their share of problems, and those grafted roses seem to have you know more issues. I always the roses I grow are going to be what they call own root roses, roses that are not grafted; they're actually grown from cuttings and growing on their own roots because uh, they you know they have a lot fewer problems. If there's any hope for it, I would get some of this uh, kind of hokey reading the the label on it, but it's called Super Thrive, and you Super get just Thrive. A, yeah, smallest bottle you can find at the nursery. You put like a cap full of this stuff in a watering can full of water, pour it over the plant, and I've seen things that you know I thought were dead come back to life with Super Thrive, and it's uh, an interesting story behind it that I won't bother to tell, but. Um, if anything will bring that rose out, it will. Now, the other thing I will tell you, it's just a lot to know about buying roses. And like I say, any time that you can buy roses on their own roots, they're going to be hardier. The other thing is that a grafted rose, they can take the same variety of rose, say a Mr. Lincoln or a Peace Rose, talking about a couple of old ones or you know, just any rose, and it can be grafted onto a number of different rootstocks, and uh, it'll still be called by the same name, uh, Mr. Lincoln or a Peace Rose or an Oklahoma or whatever else, and if you're going to buy grafted roses, to me it's very important that you get them from the California growers like Weeks or Armstrong or Jackson Perkins because they use a rootstock that will grow very well in this area. And that's probably what your rose is doing real well is. There are also a lot of rose growers over in Tyler and Lindale and East Texas. Yeah, I know. Yeah, nothing against them. I was born in Tyler, and they call that the rose capital of Texas. Yeah, because the front of my house faces west. Yeah. So it gets the full brunt of the sun and heat. Yeah, but that's not a problem. But but your East Texas growers, they use a different rootstock that does not do well in this area. So it may just be that that rose doesn't like that hot, hot west-facing side. And uh, my suspicion is that uh, one of the roses is on a good, hardy rootstock for this area. The other is on a poor rootstock for this area, which makes it susceptible to die back and a bunch okay. of other things. Yeah, because one of, one of they were bought at the same time. One of them I call Midget. Mm-hmm. He's in the ground. He hasn't grown much. He'll produce the flowers. The other one I call Schizoid because every time it blooms, it's a different color. <laughs> yeah. So that's, they, the, that's the one I want to hold on to. Sure. Well, just and, and just go on, you know, growing the way you have. Obviously, if one of them is doing well, there's nothing wrong uh, with your culture, Ralph. But uh, depending on where that rose came from and what kind of rootstock, it's quite possible that you've got a, a rose that just, you know, doesn't like 
our part of Texas to begin with, and it really doesn't like being in that much sun, but it wouldn't make any difference because yeah. uh, it, it just doesn't like our alkaline soil. It's grafted on a, on a rootstock that likes an acidy soil, which is what they have in East Texas. So uh, okay. always, always ask and always look to see where they were grown. Normally somewhere on that tag, it'll tell you where the nursery that grew it is. And if it says Tyler or Lindale, don't pass it up unless you're, I mean, don't buy it unless you're planning to move to Tyler or Lindale. Uh, if it says uh, California, that's the one you want to buy. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, don't know when, uh, where it come from because we got it from the family nursery in Beeville. Yeah. So that was well. like 45 years ago. <laughs> well, uh, it's, uh, this yeah. year, it's just done real well. Well, try your Super Thrive on it and see if it comes out. And if you have an opportunity, there's a company called the Antique Rose Emporium. Their roses do, for the most part, really well here. But Super Thrive is going to be the best hope for this guy. That's the other thing about grafted roses is they have a more limited life. Uh, Rose grown on its own roots, like the Antique Rose Emporium does, they can live 100 years. Oh, okay, okay. All right, well, I'll give that a shot see if we can keep her alive. Look forward to hearing from you, Ralph. All right, thank you very much, sir. Yes, sir. Thank you, and goodbye. All right, back to gardening. We're going to talk to John and Karen and Connie and Tom. As if Tom's phone holds up, I know I had a little bit of trouble getting through. So uh, let's get started. John's up first. Good morning, John. Good morning. I have Good a morning, sir. green. I have a green pepper growing, and the first two peppers I picked when they were green, the rest seemed to be turning red on me. Is that a bad thing? Can I still eat them? Oh, yeah, you can absolutely eat them. Uh, if you get into canning peppers, um, not so good on the red ones because they lose their crispness. A red pepper is always going to be, uh, oh, not not going to have that, you know, that real crisp texture to it. But virtually every pepper out there from jalapenos to serranos to bells, as the pepper matures and ages, uh, it's going to turn red on you. They still taste wonderful, but uh, if you uh, and you know, I've, I've I've pickled, I've canned a lot of peppers over the years, and learned if you're going to pickle them or can them, don't choose the red ones because they just get soggy on you. But uh, nothing at all wrong with them. That's just a normal thing. The hot part of the summer, they turn red a lot faster than they do in cooler weather. So when we get to fall, it's probably going to go back to going more what you're used to. But uh, try to pick and enjoy them when they first start turning color, and you'll uh, you'll have a, a lot more crunch to them. And then when they have a little soft spot, a little yellow spot, can I just cut that out? You know, yeah, it's kind of yeah just like trim it out. Just trim it out and uh, then yeah. carve up the, the, the pepper. Okay. Okay, thank you, Bob. I, I can promise you that when you go to the grocery store and buy a bottle of picante sauce or something like that, every pepper that went into that bottle had a bad spot on it because that's what the pepper growers do. The ones that are beautiful, they're the ones that go in the bin to get sold. The ones that have those little blemishes on them, uh, they go into the salsa tub. So nothing wrong with them, but just, yeah, just trim out anything that doesn't look good, and uh, you'll do fine with them. Okay, thank you. My pleasure, John. Thank you, sir. <laughs> Goodbye. All right, Karen is up next. Good morning, Karen. Good morning. I Good have a morning. question about a uh, Japanese pittosporum. I've had this probably for about 10 years. Uh, it is starting to lose some of the big limbs that come up from the bottom. They're about, what, two or three inches in diameter. And some of them have cracked right down the middle. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
and they look like they're rotting out, even though there's green limbs on the end. And so I'm wondering if it's reached its length of life or if I've just neglected it and didn't water it like I should have, which is a possibility. But I do trim it about seven feet tall, ten feet wide. And on one side, the bigger limbs have kind of rotted off, even though you can Um, see new ones coming up from the bottom. I'm not familiar with a specific pittosporum called Japanese pittosporum. I've never heard of that, but uh, oh. uh, I've grown a lot of pittosporum over the years. And uh, the does this one have solid green leaves, or does it have a variegated leaf, a green and it, white leaf? Some of them are var- var- variegated. Okay. That plant is not as cold-hardy as the solid green form is. And the splits in the bark usually occur when it freezes. And uh, I've, I've got a green one outside my back door that's, I don't know, they must be pushing 100 years old. And uh, the base of it is about 24 inches across and it's about 12 feet tall and 15 feet wide. But, right. um, you know, used to have variegated ones. Uh, and, of course, I live a little further north where it's a little colder up outside of Bernie. But our last really cold winters, all my variegated ones did what yours did. The limbs split on them, and then over a period, uh, you know, actually over a couple of years, it just kept declining and declining and finally, you know, died out. So um, I would probably this winter... I would trim out all the dead. I would trim out uh, any limbs that show major splits in them and see if you can force it to come out from the base because it's it's not really a matter of age, but at some point we had a winter that was cold enough that caused that one some damage, and uh, um, it probably is salvageable. I can't tell you without seeing it, and even then I'd just be guessing. But uh, feed it regularly. Try to feed it three or four times a year. Same uh, good organic fertilizer you put on your grass will be good on your pittosporum. Water it super deeply, you know, when you water it. And uh, and, and especially if we're going to get really cold weather, water it before a freeze. Uh, chances are yours, and since you've owned up to what we all do sometimes, yours was probably a little too dry, which made it more susceptible to freeze damage, and that's oh, I, when you get I those cracks I guarantee you it damage. was. <laughs> <laughs> I well, didn't take it, it has a chance. Of, I should have, but it's, it's beautiful. I mean, I love it, but I just well, didn't know whether I should just pull it out or no, I mean, dig it I'd, up and put a new one in. Now, I'd, I'd leave it. I would deep water it. I would fertilize it. Go ahead and cut the dead limbs out. There's no reason to leave right. them. But uh, early next spring, cut way back any of the ones that have splits in them, and it'll force it to put on some more growth down low. And uh, just even if you don't water as often as you should, the one outside my back door gets watered about twice a year, but it roots, probably has roots all the way to the next county. But especially yeah. if they're forecasting uh, really cold weather, be sure that the day before it's going to get cold that you really give it a thorough, deep, deep, deep watering, and it'll survive oh. the freeze a lot better. Great. You made me happy. Thank you, sir. Well, that's a good thing. I appreciate that, and thank you for the call. Uh, let's see. Next up is going to be uh, Connie, I believe. Good morning, Connie. Hi. Um, I have a question about geothermal greenhouses for Fredericksburg, okay. Texas. Uh-huh. Do you think that you could grow stuff year-round in there? Well, geothermal, um, you know, you're simply taking advantage 
of the warmth of the water coming up out of the ground. Mm-hmm. We don't have any, you know, active geysers or volcanoes or things like that so it's not like what they're doing uh you know in new zealand and what they're doing in various other places where they are have natural hot springs and they are using that water to uh you know to heat the greenhouse uh, because their places you know obviously look at yellowstone park water comes out of the ground above boiling point and so you naturally can extract a lot of heat from that and you can reach a you can heat a greenhouse extremely well even you know um, pretty much no matter where you are in texas uh, your water coming out of the ground in the winter months is going to be warmer uh, then the air temperature is, you know, you could have, let's say you had a 20 degree morning in Fredericksburg, which is, isn't all that unusual, and your groundwater was at 60 degrees. So um, you're not going to be able to pull nearly as much heat out of uh, out of 60 degree water as you could out of 150 degree water. So it's, it is, in theory, it it is certainly possible, but you're not going to keep your greenhouse real warm. Your greenhouse is never going to be as warm as the water is and if you're using it to grow vegetables you know cold weather vegetables if you just say oh my broccoli freezes sometimes here in Fredericksburg if you had it in a greenhouse where it never got below 40 degrees you'd do just fine with it but you're never going to uh, heat an orchid house you're never going to heat a greenhouse that you're keeping a lot of house plants and things because the water that you're using for geothermal purposes uh, is never going to be warm enough to really keep that greenhouse warm, if that makes any sense. So uh, it's it's possible if you want a cool greenhouse, and there are geothermal uh, heating or heated greenhouses and things across the hill country. We have some special regulations. I, of course, serve on a groundwater district, and you'll uh, it has to be a total closed loop. You can't expose... Uh, the water to air and then put it back in the ground unless you treat it to be sure the water is not contaminated. But a geothermal, what we call a closed loop system, uh, is a way of keeping things a little bit warmer. But whether it's going to be really warm enough to grow what you want to grow, um, hard to say. Uh, you're going to have to be happy with plants that don't mind staying down in the upper 30s, 40s, 45 degree. You could use it as a supplemental heat source and then, uh, you know, maybe use um, some some other form of uh, of natural energy. But long answer to a short question, but you know me, I want you to know the science behind it as well as uh, just a yes or no answer. So, yes, if you want to have a cool greenhouse, geothermal might be practical in Fredericksburg. If you want to grow Phalaenopsis orchids, forget it. Okay. Move to Rotorua, New Zealand, and you'll do extremely well with geothermal down there. Mm. Okay. Um, I have a lot of fig trees. Mm-hmm. Should I be watering them right now, or should I be letting Absolutely. them go dormant? No, they don't. They don't ever grow dormant. Fig trees are, in effect, a tropical tree, and uh, if they go too dormant, that's called dead. Uh, okay. Yes, you should be watering your fig trees year round, uh, especially oh. when we're as dry as we are now. So they have a very shallow root system. I'd always keep a fig tree mulched, and uh, I'd be watering it twelve months out of the year. All righty. And my vincus, what does it mean when the leaves are going yellow? If the leaves are 
overall on the plant. If the stem looks good, but the leaves are getting uh, a little yellow, they have probably gotten a little too dry at some point. If you were to look down the stem and you see a brown point below where the yellowing is occurring, you have a disease called Phytophthora wilt and you would want to cut off that stem all the way down into good wood. So you have to look at it real carefully. Newer varieties are much more resistant to the Phytophthora wilt disease. But uh, look down where you see yellowing on the top. If you see like sort of a brown, sometimes a little kind of a sunken area on the side of the stem, cut down into green wood below that and clean your, sterilize your shears with alcohol or something between each cut. And uh, and try when you're watering vincus, try to water the ground, not the leaves, because uh, uh, older varieties, man, we used to see hundreds of thousands of vincus die every year from Phytophthora wilt. So got to look and see what the cause is. If there's no brown on the stem, they probably just got too dry and they'll come right back out. Okay, well, thank you. You're sure welcome. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. Talk to Bob now, 210-599-5555. All right, back to gardening once again. Uh, looks like we're going to talk to Tom and Minnie and Mike and Pam. And uh, Tom is up first. Good morning, Tom. Hey, Bob. I was calling about that oleander. Uh, what yeah. size pot should I put that in if it's in a three-gallon right now? Uh, I don't believe uh, they've been in the three-gallon very long. Remember that um, you never want to go too big, but on the other hand, the bigger the pot, the easier it's going to be to keep it watered. If it's in a three-gallon container now, I'd be looking at a pot that's somewhere probably 15, 16 inches in diameter, uh, small enough that you can still move it, like on a little hand truck or something like that, but sure. big enough that it's going to accommodate a couple of years' growth. So, yeah, I'm looking at... Uh, uh, probably 15, 16 inches in diameter. And if possible, get a light color, a bright colored pot, because uh, the darker colors absorb a lot of heat. Now, if you're, if you're getting a good pot, you know, Vietnamese clay or something like that, it's not really important. But if you're getting a thinner wall pot, a dark pot's going to be a lot warmer soil-wise. So uh, um, lots of good pots out there. Just, um, you know, when you plant it, don't plant it too deeply. Leave enough room in the pot that you can have a little water stand when you water so it'll really soak thoroughly and uh, should do very well with it. Is there anything I should put in in there besides the plant? <laughs> <laughs> well, you sound like a guy I can tease, so I'd say, yeah, dirt. <laughs> but, uh, you know, dirt. The, but, but the whole point behind my teasing you about that is I, I get so many people that say, now, I don't want to buy that much soil, so I'm just going to put rock in the bottom half of the, of the pot. Yeah. Don't do that. You don't, you only get roots where you have good soil. So I put a, you know, a little rock or a little piece of broken pot or something over the hole in the bottom so all the soil doesn't wash out. But, uh, you want, you want every space in that pot that's filled uh, to be filled with you know good soil but always leave it down an inch or two below the rim so that like say when you water it it just uh, doesn't run off the side now that's that's one of the biggest problems we face in the nursery industry is some of these blasted growers they fill the pot so full that you have to go back and water them three times to try to just get the water through the pot so give yourself a little margin for a little bit of pooling on top there and uh, you'll be very successful with it any special soil no, no, just okay. soil that drains well. I avoid soils with peat moss because, number one, it's not a renewable resource and it tends to break down a little more quickly. 
I prefer compost or core-based soils. So, uh, and I would definitely stay away from something like miracle Grow soils because they're sticking a synthetic fertilizer in there to a crappy soil to begin with. But, uh, you know, if you can find some ladybug, that's good soil. Nature's creation puts a real good soil in there. But uh, it's, uh, yeah, just just look for something that drains well, doesn't have too much bark in it. And if you look at the ingredients, I'd much rather see compost or core, C-O-I-R, which is a coconut fiber. I'd much rather see that than uh, Canadian peat. Gotcha. All right, well, thank you very much. Good luck with it. Let me know how it does for you, Tom. Thank you. Okay, bye. All right, next up is Minnie. Good morning, Minnie. Good morning, Bob. I have questions about an agapanthus, bougainvillea, and and the lemon tree. My agapanthus has never bloomed, and I have it in shade. Do I need to transplant it? You need to put it in full sun, but don't do it this time of year because it will sunburn if it goes from shade to sun. But if you do it in the middle of the winter, it'll be fine. But agapanthus be a beautiful green plant in the shade and a beautiful blooming plant in a real sunny spot. Okay. There's no such thing as too much sun. They look look delicate, but but they'll take all the sun uh, Texas throws at them. Okay. All right, and then the next question is, I love bougainvilleas, but I don't seem to be lucky growing them. Are they better in the pot or in the ground, or what do you recommend, and what do I need to know about planting them? Well, bougainvilleas are not completely cold-hardy. Generally, Mm -hmm. in most of San Antonio and South Texas, uh, if they freeze down in the winter, they come right back out in the spring. But for somebody like me mm-hmm. that lives up in the hill country, pretty much have to stay in a pot because they can freeze and die in the winter months otherwise. But mm-hmm. um, when selecting a bougainvillea, always ask for, we call it a day-neutral variety because bougainvilleas, uh, the old-fashioned bougainvilleas were what we call short-day bloomers. They only bloom when the days are short and the nights are long, and so consequently okay. you didn't get many blooms in the summer. You just got blooms spring and fall. But the newer ones um, we call day-neutral because they don't pay any attention to day length, and they should bloom from spring to, through fall. So, uh, you know, get Juanita Hatton or Vera Purple or one of the good day-neutral ones. Um don't ever put a, if you're going to grow it in a pot, don't ever put a real small plant in a great big pot. You want to move the pot size up gradually. And like mm-hmm. all plants, it's very important that when you water them, you really flood them. You'll never put too much water on a bougainvillea at one time. But then let them go until they're good and dry on the surface before you water them again. If you if you don't allow the soil to dry out at least partially, you'll also have a wonderful plant and no flowers. But uh, let them go till the soil's dry, maybe a knuckle deep. Don't ever let them dry out completely. And um, Mm -hmm. my rule of thumb, bougainvilleas are like many plants. If they're, uh, you know, really hot and if there's breezy, if it's breezy, sometimes they wilt. Even when they're not dry, they're just wilting from the the wind Mm -hmm. and the heat. So in general on Mm -hmm. bougainvilleas, I figure if it's droopy in the afternoon, don't worry. If it's still droopy the next morning, it needs a thorough drink. Feed them fairly regularly, something like has to grow plant or something like that, and you should become Mm -hmm. very successful with bougainvilleas, Manny. 
Okay. And then the last question I have concerns my lemon tree, which is in the pot. Okay. And it just never fills out, you know, to look like a beautiful tree. It's kind of skimpy looking. Will it do better in the ground? You are laughing. <laughs> Am I because, impatient? Or no, I'm, I'm, I'm laughing. I'm laughing with you because lemon trees always look skimpy and not especially pretty. They just, uh, um, they they should, they will be thicker, they will be greener in the ground, but they're never going to be a beautiful tree. That they, It's just not oh. the way lemon trees grow. But in the ground, okay. just like your bougainvilleas, if it gets real cold, they will suffer. Now, Myers lemon is more cold-hardy than Ponderosa or some of the mm-hmm. other lemons out there. But even Myers lemon below about 26 degrees, it's going to have to be covered mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. brought in. They're, they're definitely fuller, greener, prettier trees in the ground than they are in pots, but uh, they're never okay. going to win a beauty contest. <laughs> it's just Okay, uh, well, then I won't worry about it any longer. I thought, why does this plant not look lush and beautiful? Okay. Well, as, long, right, as, it gives then, you, as long as it gives you lemons, it's doing what you need it to do. <laughs> it does give me lemons, yes. Then you're in good shape. Um. Bob, and then about the bougainvillea, do you have those day-neutral variety in your nursery? Everything we get are day-neutral. Um, we have mm-hmm. bougainvilleas, uh, and I'm looking out the window at some of them right now, but just about anybody in the nursery business, I'll tell you, many. this has been just a crazy year, and sometimes... <laughs> People, mm-hmm. What we have in the afternoon is what we start out with, and is not what we start out with in the morning because they come mm-hmm. and go. But yeah, we've got beautiful mm-hmm. bougainvilleas. I'm sure most nurseries do. But uh, if I told you that at eight o'clock in the morning and you came in at four o'clock mm-hmm. in the afternoon, uh, mm-hmm. selection probably wouldn't be quite as good. But most of your nurseries are going to have uh, good bougainvilleas, and everything we get is day neutral. Okay, one more question about the bougainvillea: the white. And the red, do they require the same care, or yes, does ma'am. it? Yes, ma'am. The white, the okay. red, the variegated, um, all of those require pretty much the same care. Bob, you are simply the best. Thank you so much. <laughs> You're very kind, Minnie. I think pretty highly of you, too. So you get out and have a good Sunday, and I know we'll talk again. Okay. Bye, Bob. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right, back to gardening. We're going to talk to Mike and Pam and Liz in a second mic. So uh, the mic that hears a click on his uh, receiver right now that's been waiting a few minutes. Uh, You're the guy I'm talking to. Good morning. Uh, Good morning. Morning, sir. I'm enjoying this Arctic front that hit us. (laughs) <laughs> well, I wasn't exactly running for a jacket, but uh, I uh, did turn my did turn the AC on my car a little warmer this morning because it was sixty five when I left, and uh, uh, sure was sure was a pleasant change. Yeah, we were we were about sixty six this morning up here at Harper. Yeah, yeah, feels yeah. good. I love it. Uh, question is. Is the color of a pot, does that change how much you need to water? Um, 
slightly perhaps because obviously the hotter the pot is the you know more water may evaporate the majority of the water that goes out of the pot though is taken up by the plant and lost through the leaves in the form of transpiration and pot color is going to have just a very very minimal impact on that so uh, my question would be or my answer would be yes it may but only a very very little bit i would not base you know pot color on uh, or I wouldn't base my selection thinking of how it's going to impact watering now a dark colored pot especially a thin wall pot uh, will get much hotter the soil will get much hotter and the roots will not be as happy but as far as watering color is going to have minimal impact on how frequently you need to water yeah well I got them up on a deck yeah three feet off the ground so I figured it would dry out quicker well, they they may, and of course there's also a big difference in whether it's like a uh, terracotta clay pot or whether it's a ceramic glazed pot. A terracotta pot has moisture constantly moving through the pot and evaporating off the surface, so it's going to dry out a lot faster than a plastic pot or a glazed pot where the water doesn't move through the sides of the pot. So. Uh, that's going to have a much, much bigger impact on how frequently you have to water than the color is yeah, going to well, be. They're, they're, yeah, they're, they're just cheap plastic pots. Yeah. I didn't, have time, I didn't have time this year to stick a, a, a real garden in. Yeah. But well, I will yeah. this winter at some point. Um, and the other thing I had, you know, if you're trying to attract bees, uh-huh. I have found... We buy the uh, chicken feed for our chickens. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the the high protein. Right. We put them in them little cheapy feeders. Uh huh. I'm sitting here looking at 100 or 150 bees eating my feeders. <laughs> well, they, you know, they probably have added a little bit of molasses, a little bit of something sugary, you know, in the feeds. And, uh, yeah, the bees love it. It's uh, like uh, my business partner and I were sitting on her porch the other day writing a newsletter, and she must have had 150 bees on her hummingbird feeder. So anything like that that has any kind of uh, carbohydrate in it, um, <laughs> you, you may attract more than you want, but it is a good way to, you know, to bring them in, and um, uh, I, we, it, we it, love watching them. Yeah, because they they will they will in about an hour's time they will empty that feeder onto the ground. Really? Wow! So we have so many, and they, that and I just love sitting here watching them because they roll they roll them little little uh, <laughs> flakes out, and yeah, and yeah. the chickens go over there and try and eat and. Nature is fascinating. It's uh, I love I, it. not, yeah, not thought about that as a way of attracting. But uh, you know, I always encourage people to do their best to attract the mason bees, which are our, our native uh, solitary bee as opposed to a colony bee. I always worry, you know, when I'm seeing a huge number of bees coming in, do whether it's grain or whether it's uh, a hummingbird feeder or whatever. Uh, we've got enough Africanized bees out there, the so-called killer bees, and they're not yeah. aggressive when they're up at the feeder or things. But if I start seeing a lot of bees coming in in a hurry, 
I'm going to be a lot more careful and kind of keep my eyes open because that tells me their colony may be somewhere close by, and I'm sure going to be careful around them. But you know all those things. Sounds like you know the land and uh, know the wildlife, so you enjoy your bees. Yes, and and the other question I had was the uh, avocados. Mm -hmm. How will they fare out here in Harper? Not well. Not well. If you have a super you know, protected area, or if you're going to grow in a big pot that you could drag inside. You get up Harper, Fredericksburg, Utopia, anywhere up there where you're regularly getting down below 20 degrees, even the Mexican varieties are going to suffer. Uh, if you have a real protected area, if you have an atrium or something like that with plenty of light, then I'd say it's a possibility. Otherwise, grow those wonderful peaches and things that the rest of us can't grow where we don't have as many chilling hours. But I'd uh, only way I grow a, an avocado or only way I grow citrus up there would be if I could uh, e- either I had a real protected area or I could bring it in in the winter months. Uh, that's not going to work very well, is it? <laughs> It <laughs> depends on the situation. If I might, if my way, I might live in a big greenhouse uh, with a hot tub and surrounded by things I could eat. But it's, uh, uh, it's just let's just say you can do it, but it's going to be a lot more work for you because what you're going to have to do in the winter months. If I could build something to protect them, that would if work. If you. You would, in effect, be building a little mini greenhouse over it. I think in Harper, I don't think just covering would be enough. But uh, I had a friend here in San Antonio that uh, grew a grapefruit tree from seed, a non-cold hardy one, and he built a 15 by 15 by 10 foot high greenhouse over that thing every winter and picked about two bushels of fruit. So don't get one of these little polyethylene, uh, you know, dinky things that's going to blow away in the first wind but uh if you can create a structure even a temporary structure that you can ventilate for the hot days but close up you know when when we're going to have a cold night then you can certainly do it but uh uh, it's not as it doable, it's is it practical and that just depends on how much time you have and uh, whether or not you travel um, I, I laugh. Our, uh, Greg Popovich was here in the nursery yesterday, and poor Greg loves growing lemon trees, but then he goes out on a Spurs road trip, and it gets too cold, and they freeze, and he has to come back and buy more. So you just kind of have to match your, your lifestyle to what you want to do with them. And, yeah, you can grow uh, uh, you can grow avocados, you can grow lemons and things in Harper, but you're going to have to be there to look after them. It's going to be a bit more work. Yeah, I'm here most of the time, so I don't have <laughs> to travel budget that Popovich has. <laughs> Isn't that the truth? <laughs> or the money to replace them with. So, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, give it give it a try, but uh, it only takes one cold night to end a lot of work. So just uh, whatever works in your lifestyle, Michael, work, work well. Just uh, you are a little colder, and uh, that's the price you pay for having cooler mornings and uh, maybe not quite as much heat as the rest of us. But anyway, good luck with it. Let me know what you decide, and holler at me if I can uh, be of any assistance to you. And uh, I appreciate all your help. You're awesome. It's always a pleasure. I sure do thank you. Okay, Pam is up next. Let's talk to Pam. Good morning. Good morning, Bob. Good morning. Uh, my son uh, just built a new house, and he has a neighbor who has an unsightly backyard. And he's trying to, uh, he wants to get a evergreen tree to put back in that corner. Okay. To kind of cover up that 
backyard, and his backyard from his porch to the fence is about 20 feet. Okay. And how tall is this uh, screen going to need to grow to give him protection from the ugliness that some people seem well, to uh, his live foot, with? His, his, he has a, a normal fence, probably six foot, so I would mm-hmm. think at least 15 feet. Okay, okay. Um, and he doesn't want it real wide because he doesn't want it to grow in the neighbor beside him, you know, across sure. his fence, because it, it needs to be in that one corner, because the, the people to the other side, they have a, like, 10-foot fence back there, so he can't sure. see their yard. Well, that's what pruning shears were made for. <laughs> you know, yeah. you, can, you, you want something that's going to grow, but something that you can control the size on. Uh, there are a number of options. Um, you know, if he wanted a, a true shade tree, uh, the obvious answer would be what we call a Mexican live oak or a Monterey oak, but that eventually is going to be a 40-foot tree, and it's not going to grow super, super quickly. Options yeah. for something that will grow 12 to 15 feet tall and will do it in a reasonable period of time. Um, loquat, it's gonna, you know, it's, it will be a big plant. It will fill up that corner. But, uh, you know, you could get a loquat in a 15 gallon container and it'll be 12 feet tall within a couple of years. Uh, and that would be so a good does choice. That have, does that have something on it that drops? Is that like a. Yeah, it has a yellow fruit that drops. If he wants yeah. to avoid he that, there, yeah, that doesn't make a mess, you know, back there. Then um, probably my first choice would be something called a xylosma. It's spelled it's spelled like xylophone. It's spelled X Y L O S M A. Xylosma. Oh gosh, if you're ever by our nursery, which is called Shades of Green, right oh, next door, there's a there's a strip center next door to it, and that giant thing that's about 20 feet tall and 15 feet wide, uh, that's xylosma that's been there for about 10 or 12 years. Uh, again, depending on what size plant he starts with, he he can have a nice screen in a couple of years. But xylosma doesn't drop anything, and uh, it's you know perfectly hardy here, and probably would be my first choice. Um, if you're on the south side, I'd suggest Japanese blueberry. But every now and then we get a cold enough winter that uh, it's going to do some damage. So uh, uh, probably the plant I'm going to suggest to him for fast growth. And uh, a nice screen is going to be the the xylosma. Now, other choices are things like Pride of Houston Yopon Holly, but it's much slower growing. Uh, Podocarpus uh, Japanese U is also a beautiful evergreen that will get up 15, 20 feet tall, but it's much slower growing. So uh, for the combination of lack of problems and quick growth and, uh, you know, making a nice dense screen, tell them to check out xylosma. That, that's probably what I would plant if it was me. Okay. Okay. Great. Thank you. You're certainly welcome. Anything else I can help you with? Um, do you have a solution for armadillos? <laughs> In a <laughs> limited area, blood meal will repel armadillos. Uh, if you've got one flower bed that they keep going to, get yourself a bag of blood meal at uh, the nearest nursery, and that will repel them. Uh, the only yeah, long-term we're on solution, five acres and we have a, we have a lot of areas that he covers or they yeah. cover. I I would trap them. I would trap them and take them somewhere else to live. Uh, there's okay, we, not. There, we got the, a trap, but is there anything you put in there to draw them to the trap? Not really. Not but really. what I do is uh, 
you know, I will usually I've got like a low rock wall and then fence on top of it around my yard. But I will I will take a two by six and I will turn it up on edge and kind of like make mm-hmm. a funnel that goes down to the in you know into the trap because I watch that blasted armadillo when he comes out and he usually walks right along that wall and. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he just walks in the trap and catches himself. And I've caught many an armadillo that way. Um, if you're on acreage uh, and you don't have something like that that has a natural barrier on one side, then I'll use two two-by-sixes and turn them up on edge uh, so that they just kind of point into the trap. I'm probably going to water pretty heavily where I put that trap because that's going to be uh, Mr. and Ms. Armadillo loves to go dig for earthworms and grub worms and things like that. And, um, and and that's going to make it much more likely that he's going to go check that out. And, uh, again, even even a 2x4, but especially a 2x6, they're too stupid to go over the top of it. They just walk along it figuring they're going to get to the end. And depending on yeah. which way they turn, you've got a 50-50 chance they're going to walk right into the trap and catch themselves. And uh, I'm generally pretty successful at trapping armadillos and uh, giving them a new home a few miles away. Yeah, okay. All right. Well, thanks a lot, Bob. Always a pleasure, Pam. You have a wonderful Sunday, and uh, we'll talk again. Man, the time rushes by when you're having fun and talking to wonderful people out there about a fun subject. Ah, we're down to the last uh, 20 minutes of the show, uh, and it looks like we're going to talk to Liz and Mike and Tana. Liz is up first. Good morning, Liz. Good morning, Bob. I have a friend who has a backyard with a lawn company who's doing it for him, and they have uh, gotten rid of all the weeds, which I'm sure they sprayed with some kind of something on it. But he wants to plant uh, Bermuda grass. Mm -hmm. Uh, He wants to go to find some seeds somewhere. Is this a good plan? Um, Is his yard, yard super, super sunny? Yes, I think so. Okay, because that's what Bermuda has to have is very, right, very sun, I have it strong in my sun. Yard. Yeah, yep. well, um, yes, and he wants to do it fairly soon because Bermuda grass, Bermuda seed, needs really warm weather to sprout and grow well. So he's probably right. got about another 30 days of good time to plant. Um, if he is, you know, wanting what we call common Bermuda or standard Bermuda, uh, great to plant it from seed. It's one of our hardiest grasses. Downside is, of course, it's the first grass to turn brown in the winter and the last to green up in the spring, and it may have chiggers in it. Now, there are some super compact Bermudas out there, like the use on golf courses. Uh, most common one is called TIFF, T-I-F-F, either TIFF That's what I have in my yard. I'm a master yep. gardener, so I understand a lot of it. Okay, but. well, very good. But TIFF does not come from seed. If he right. wants to have Bermuda right. like you have, then he's going to have to buy it in, in squares. He in squares, doesn't have to yeah. plant it solid. He can always break it up in smaller pieces and, uh, you know, let it grow and fill in. But if he wants right. common Bermuda, the taller one, then he can plant it from seed and he can do it right now. Well, I think his lawn company wants to do it like next week, so uh, I was just wondering if the seed at Lowe's or somewhere would be okay to do, because I'm sure that's what he's going to do. Yeah, check the package of seed. It will always have an expiration date on it, and he wants to get fresh seed. Legally, they should not be selling old seed, but it doesn't mean it doesn't happen every now and then, because they're... uh, uh, Lowe's people are nice. I like them much better than the other big box store, but uh, they're not mm-hmm. gardeners. 
<laughs> so, no. <laughs> uh, but but you know, tell him and and there are some improved varieties. If he wants a better Bermuda, there's one called Riviera. There's one called Blackjack, and uh, if our yeah, these are from Seed, and okay. he could talk to Douglas King Seed here in San Antonio, mm-hmm. and they will even ship it to his doorstep. Okay, I will but, tell uh, him then. And uh, yeah. you, being a good mom, you uh, tell him to be careful what he does and do it right, Liz. So, uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> and, I'm and tell him. Yeah, it's it's a challenge I know with people that have busy lives and don't always take the time to do it right. Remind him that when he first plants that seed, he's probably going to be watering twice a day until it germinates and starts growing. But uh, mm-hmm. this is the best time of year. If he's going to do this next week or two, it'd be ideal. So uh, okay. you call me if uh, you call me if he has any more questions. Okay. Well, thank you very much. You're have a good day. Welcome. You do the same. Thank you. Goodbye. All right, Mike is up next. Uh, good morning, Mike. Hello, good morning. How are you? I'm good, sir. How about yourself? Well, I'm doing okay. Working on some projects out here in the garage, but I've got a uh, a problem with my Spanish grape. I bought it at okay. Spanix in, uh, in February, planted it, pruned it back, took some cuttings. The cuttings came up great in pots. Uh, in March, it came out and did real well. But now, so I put it on a, I built a trellis for it mm-hmm. and uh, because I want to produce grapes to make wine. And okay. um, so it's got it's got the the uh, trunk coming up. It splits and it's grown mm-hmm. five foot on one side and four on the other. But what's happening is the new foliage look is, looks looks good, but the older foliage is turning brown at the edge of the of the lobes, and then that brown or rust color meets in the middle, and the leaf falls off. And I have a stem left. Getting a little too dry, but grapevines do that in the summer months. If it's not a super widespread problem. You're just looking at August in Texas. Um, so okay. it's, uh, you know, I always judge by what the new leaves look like more than what the old leaves look like. And grapes are just not pretty plants in August. Uh, now, you go to California or you go through the country where I was last week over in Georgia, yeah, you can have beautiful uh, vines over a much longer season. But you're kind of talking about whatever grape around here looks like. I, I suspect they got a little too dry at some point, uh, which is why you're having some of them drop. But you know, there's a lot goes into growing a wine grape, and uh, black Spanish is is a great grape. It's a small grape, but it's a high sugar grape. It should make a you know very good crush for you. But um, I made, uh, I made, it's it's I it's made, always going to look I, ugly in the summer. Okay, I made some from my neighbor's plant. You know, it was it was excellent. That's why I planted this so I could have my own. And what uh-huh. I've done with it, I, I cut all the canes off of it, just leaving the foliage, so that it, so the tips of the the uh, of the runners would run out to the ends. I've got it like on a twenty foot. So I want ten foot on each side. So mm-hmm. what I've done now is I just kind of just I'm leaving it alone. And uh, whatever new foliage is coming out, whether it's going to be a cane or just a, a leaf, I'm leaving it alone. And those and those are healthy. Good. Well, very good. Well, there is an art to pruning okay. grapes, and uh, I would get a good book where, with a lot of good pictures, it shows you how to do it because pruning is essential to getting a good heavy production. If you decide to plant a second variety, um, look at Champanelle. Champanelle is a very productive grape. Uh, I had a friend in South Texas planted four plants, and the second year he got two bushels of grapes off of it. So uh, um, it is probably more productive than black Spanish, but it's not quite as high in sugar. And um, 
I don't have a specific name for you, but there may be kind of a, a grape growers organization. I know a lot of years ago they invited me to judge the home wine division of the Medina County Fair. And you get over toward Hondo, you get over in that area, there's some old Germans there that really make very, very good wine. So you obviously know something about what you're doing, but you may find, and I'd like to say I can't tell you exactly where to look, but there are some local growers that uh that really, really have learned it. And you don't need to reinvent the wheel. If you've got somebody to mentor you, uh, you'll be a lot more successful a lot more quickly. And I certainly wish you luck in the endeavor. Okay, well, I'm, in, I'm in Castroville. I'm down here. So, okay. Like a, my neighbor's, he's a farmer. He, his is just growing on a channeling fence. All he uh-huh. does is put water, you know, and it's doing great. So, okay, well, I'll start watching the water and make sure that it doesn't dry out. And uh, appreciate Well, the if help. you're in Casterville, I have no idea if he's still over there, but if you ever come across a guy named Charlie Sees, I think it's spelled S-E-U-H-S or something like that, ask around if yeah. Charlie's still around over in that area. He's he's one of the best grape growers I've ever known and a really nice guy and uh, would be a fun person to know anyway. Okay, I'll sure look him up. Very good. Appreciate it, Mike. Thank you, sir. You too. (laughs) Goodbye.